News continues. Latander over Michael Smirkanish and CNN Tonight. Michael. Anderson, thank you. I am Michael Smirkanish. Welcome to CNN Tonight. I've got the incoming mayor of New York City here live in just a moment. He's going to face a COVID crisis on day one when he takes office in just over two weeks, much like the rest of the country is now experiencing. We have breaking news this Friday evening in the Omicron fight, but it may only add to the confusion and contradictions that we're seeing all over the country. A study from the UK finds no evidence in England that Omicron is any less severe than the Delta variant. Remember that experts have been saying many cases around the world are mild or at least for the vaccinated and the boosted. The study also finds the risk of getting reinfected is five times higher with Omicron than Delta. And today the CDC director made clear Omicron is about to take over the conversation in this country. And although Delta continues to circulate widely in the United States, Omicron is increasing rapidly and we expect it to become the dominant strain in the United States as it has in other countries in the coming weeks. And that's not the only way that we're seeing conflicting messages and actions as we wonder if this frightening deja vu is warranted. Look at our schools. Tonight, one of the nation's 20 largest school districts, Prince George's County in Maryland, announced that it's going back to virtual learning until mid-January. The school's chief says that allows educators and school staff to continue to teach, quote, in conditions that prioritize their own health. But that news came just hours after the CDC director pointed to new evidence that schools can stay open even if someone is infected. She said there needs to be regular testing for anyone exposed instead of a quarantine so as to keep parents from going back into teacher mode. Encouraging, maybe, but even now, our schools and government can't get on the same page. In New York City today, the Department of Education shuttered three schools for suspected widespread COVID-19 transmission. Meanwhile, the COVID numbers are skyrocketing, and so are the number of changes in our lives. Cases in Connecticut, Hawaii, and Texas, all up more than 50% from just last week. The Northeast, Midwest, and South are seeing the fastest jumps with 16 states trending in the wrong direction. New York State alone accounting for 10% of new cases in this country over the past week, and now shattering its daily case record, though you can see hospitalizations remain comparatively low when compared with other case peaks. Ohio's governor deploying more than 1,000 National Guard troops to help at hospitals. Office reopenings are being put on hold. Holiday parties are being scrapped. The Radio City Rockettes Christmas Spectacular canceled for the rest of the season. The NCAA basketball schedule, it looks kind of like a snow globe, all shaken up. Games are being canceled, postponed, or rearranged with different teams facing off. In the NHL, three teams are now shut down and won't be back on the ice until after the league's holiday break. The NFL is postponing three of the weekend's games. Dozens of players are now on the COVID reserve list. So where does all of that put your mind a week before Christmas and with the new year looming? Nearly four in 10 Americans think we'll still need to take extra precautions. But interestingly, more of you, 45% told us in recent days that you think it's already safe to ease up. That's up nearly 10 points from September. Yet seeing massive lines for testing once again can be ominous and frustrating. Earlier this month, before scenes like this came rushing back, the Biden administration defended its work to expand free testing, which led to this question. 
Why not just make them free and give them out to, and have them available everywhere? Should we just send one to every American? Uh, yes, would be my answer. New York is just the latest state making at least some effort to get home test kids out. Half a million will go out in New York City alone. Germany and the UK let you order test packs by mail from the government or buy tests for a dollar at stores or go to a free testing center. In view of all of these developments, I can't think of a more difficult time to be an elected representative, much less the mayor of New York City. We have a special guest tonight, the incoming Democratic mayor of New York City, Eric Adams. Mr. Mayor-elect, thank you so much for being here. Thank you as well. There will be no honeymoon. I mean, you know that now, right? To go into, from, what do they say, from the, the frying pan into the fire. How do you feel? Uh, I don't want a honeymoon. Winners want the ball when the game is on the line. And the game is on the line, and, and I'm a winner, and the city's a winner. And as you stated, uh, these are challenging times. And I don't think the answer is just mailing out uh, test kits to everyone. A test kit would tell you uh, your diagnosis for the moment. It's about vaccination. We need to lean into vaccinations. We need to lean into booster shots and match with the testing. We should make sure that there is access to get vaccinated at the location. So that sounds a lot like what I heard just last night with Mayor de Blasio. Are you buying in entirely to his employer vaccination mandate? No, what I'm buying into is, number one, let's use mobile vaccination sites. Uh, One is parked outside of uh, Brooklyn Borough Hall. The lines are long. Let's double down on having access to people, number one, getting tested. But when you go get tested, let's give people the real options that they should be vaccinated uh, on the spot. And in those areas, if the science is stating that we should have uh, mandatory vaccines for those in office spaces, then we do that. Let's just follow the science and allow our health and hospitals, our Department of Health and Mental Hygiene, they should drive the policies of how we deal with COVID-19. But I think we're 10 days away from de Blasio's plan taking effect for all private employers. Will you continue that program when you're mayor? Uh, My Department of Health and Mental Hygiene Commissioner, uh, we're already meeting with de Blasio's teams now. Uh, They're going to give me my clear instructions, and I'm going to articulate those instructions uh, to New Yorkers. And if it means mandatory vaccination, if it means uh, vaccination for children in schools, whatever my Department of Health uh, tells me, that's what we're going to do. I'm not a doctor. I'm not a medical professional. That's why you surround yourself with qualified professionals to give us the right advice and the plans we implement would be based on that information. Okay, I totally respect that answer, but I would think that by now you would already have asked those folks and would have come to some decision as to whether you'll continue on what de Blasio is putting in practice. Uh, We ask many questions. Remember, COVID is continue uh, evolving. Uh, This is a formidable opponent, this thing we call COVID-19. New strands come out every day, and it's continuously changing. The numbers we see today are going to be different from the numbers that we're going to see in two weeks. Uh, So to become stringent and just lock yourself into one way of doing things is a big mistake. Now, we're dealing with two crises. We're dealing with the crisis of COVID-19 and the crisis of our economy. I don't want my economy to continue to suffer. And so I'm going to evaluate where 
we are in two weeks, and I'm going to make a smart decision based on that. I'm not going to lock down my city based on what could happen. I'm going to lock it down if needed based on what is happening, and that is not where we are right now. Mr. Mayor-elect, how about with regard to the New York City public schools? Well, we're doing an amazing job. We're looking at those areas where we have large outbreaks. We are temporarily shutting down the schools in those areas. Uh, I think it's smart. It's a great way to go. And we're going to continue to do that. This is a moving target. And we, we need to be clear on that. Uh, what we're looking at today is not what we're going to be looking at next week. We did not know there was going to be a new variant that was going to be uh, in our city uh, after leaving South Africa. We have to adjust based on what we're facing. And let's be clear, uh, this city is great at facing crises and responding to crises. And both crises we are facing, the economic crisis and the COVID crisis. And I'm going to make the right decisions to ensure that we can continue to thrive as a city. COVID is here, New Yorkers and Americans. We need to learn how do we live with it in a smart way do smart things to protect the health of New Yorkers, but at the same time to continue to function as a city. I've spent the whole week in New York City. It's a special time of year to be in New York City. You think of New York City at this time of year, you think about the ball dropping on New Year's Eve. Last night, I asked Mayor de Blasio about that subject. Watch what he told me. We made the decision a few weeks back when things were much better, but we said vaccinated people only and outdoors. Now, we're going to reassess constantly with the new information. We're going to follow the data and the science. Right now it's on. You know, we'll make a decision as we go closer as to what should finally happen. I know that it's not your call because you'll be sworn in the following day, but do you think the Times Square as we know it should take place this year? Well, I think two smart things I heard. Number one, uh, the first smart thing I heard is that you were in New York City. You you should come in and spend your money as much as possible. Uh, The second is what the mayor stated. Uh, Both of us are on the same page. Uh, This is a moving target. And if uh, January, uh, December 31st, uh, we are dealing with a spike that's uncontrollable, we'll make the determination uh, to postpone or to stop the ball dropping. We're not there yet. Uh, Right now, we're managing uh, this uh, outbreak as much as possible. We're gauging the spikes. We're looking at the hospitalizations. Uh, We're doing it the right way. And we need to be really proud of ourselves as New Yorkers. We were hit in the gut when COVID first hit here. We adjusted. We made smart decisions. We were able to push it back. And that is what we're going to continue to do. This is a resilient city, and we're going to defeat COVID like we defeat any type of crisis we're facing. If it were your call, would you have that public crowd on times, in Times Square on New Year's Eve? Uh, it has to be on New, uh, January, uh, December 31st. Uh, the call, the mayor's making the right decision. He used the powerful term, reassess. COVID moves okay. continuously. And the mayor said, let's reassess. And that is what he's going to do on the 31st. And I would tell you the same thing as I was the mayor at this, at this time. Mr. Mayor-elect, we, we like to have responses to social media live during the course of the program. Let me, let me show you some of what's just come in. We can respond together. Uh, Rick says, I'm vaccinated. I'm protected. Time to stop caring about the anti-vaxxers. You would say what to Rick? 
Hey, Rick, I'm two thumbs up to you. I agree. We cannot allow those who are spreading misinformation uh, on social media to determine the outcome of how do we follow the science. Uh, those anti-vaxxers uh, that are attempting to distort real factual information, we cannot allow fear to dominate. Facts must dominate how we address COVID. One more, Mr. Mayor, here it comes. If this thing hadn't been so politicized, we would have been on the other side of it by now. That's from Gary. You'd say what to Gary? You will say what to Gary. Uh, Gary, uh, COVID is real. It's not uh, just politicizing COVID-19. Uh, it's real. People have died for, from it. I've been, I was on the ground in the beginning when it hit our city. I know how devastating it is. We're making smart decisions. We're learning. Uh, this is the virus that continues to evolve, and we must evolve as it evolves. And so I think the government, both on the federal, state, and city level, is doing the right thing to protect Americans, and we're going to do the right thing to protect New Yorkers. Eric Adams, I wish you nothing but success. Good luck. Thank you very much. Come back to New York. I'll be there on Monday. You come, come in, come in next week and let's have this conversation knee to knee, okay? I would love that. Take care. Thank you. Closures and cancellations are back with this holiday season looking eerily similar to last year's, but are public officials overreacting? Dr. Jay Bhattacharya has a controversial viewpoint. He says we can't stop the spread and need to learn to live with the virus. He's on deck. If New York is a harbinger of what the next COVID wave looks like, it appears Omicron packs a punch. For his part, Dr. Fauci isn't ready to throw in the towel. We will win this war with this virus, but we will win it only because and because we apply the things that we have, the interventions. We are so fortunate that we have a highly effective and safe vaccine. We know what public, what public health mitigations work. We have just got to hang in there. We can't give up. My next guest offers a different, some would say controversial perspective, saying that we can't stop the spread. So it's better to protect the vulnerable and live with the virus. It's a case that he made more than a year ago in a piece called the Great Barrington Declaration. Among those who pushed back on the idea was the now CDC director. Yet in spite of all of today's headlines, Dr. Jay Bhattacharya still thinks it's time to end this. Dr. Bhattacharya, welcome back. Go ahead, give the short version of the thesis. Sure. The, the, the key thing is we do not have a technology that stops the spread of this virus. Uh, Dr. Fauci is incorrect. The mitigation technologies we have have not stopped the virus, despite many you know, millions of kids staying home from school, despite businesses closed, churches closed. We did not stop the virus from spreading. The, the, the vaccine is fantastic. It protects against severe diseases and done enormous uh, benefit and saved the lives of countless people. But it does, again, does not stop the spread of the virus. Vaccinated people can get sick uh, and spread the virus. I, for one, was vaccinated in April and got, uh, got COVID in August. Uh, that is a very common outcome. And what that means is the vaccine is great for personal protection, much less so for public protection. Uh, but we can't but Dr. Bhattacharya, your, your, your live and let live, you know, your, your laissez-faire mentality is going to lead to more cases, more hospitalizations, consequently more deaths. 
So actually, that's not right, uh, Michael. So the key thing is that uh, the, the, we have all these great technologies to protect people against the bad outcomes if you get infected. So for instance, we have the, the vaccine, absolutely great tool for uh, protection if you get sick. Uh, if uh, Another one is these monoclonal antibodies. Uh, they're, if used early in the course of a disease, reduces the risk of hospitalizations and deaths. We have um, these these uh, these antigen test kits, these you know, lateral flow test kits that quickly tell you if if you're if you're if you're positive before you go visit grandma. We have all these amazing tools to uh, to be able to reduce the risk from vulnerable people. And there's this thousandfold difference, right? Th the the elderly are, are a thousand times more likely to die if they get infected, uh, if they're un if they're not vaccinated, versus the, versus young people. Same time, the the mitigation strategies we've been doing have caused enormous public health harm. Countless people miss their cancer screening, and young, and women are showing up with stage four breast cancer today that should have been picked up last year because we stopped doing elective elective procedures. Um, it, we have uh, we have people missing diabetes management screening, uh, d depression rates through the roof in, in young people. You know, one in four in July of last year seriously considered suicide. Um, so the, the, it's not Dr. as if these mitigation strategies. Oh, apologize. In, yeah. in my setup tonight, in my setup tonight, I was, I was giving the, the overview of what's going on in the country. One of the things that I said is that in Ohio, the National Guard is being deployed to help out in ERs. I mean, the data suggests that they're being overwhelmed. If, if we again had a hands-off approach, wouldn't that be the case all over the country? I mean, we, we had, we've not had a hands-off approach, and yet we still had enormous pressure, enormous number of cases. We have 800,000 deaths, despite following this lockdown-focused strategy that Dr. Fauci has, has argued for. It is a strategy designed for failure. Uh, it has not succeeded because it cannot succeed. Uh, if you think about what a lockdown actually does, only a certain class of people, the, the rich, the laptop class who don't lose their jobs can actually afford to lockdown. When in fact, the vast, vast majority of people, regular working class people have been working through the epidemic, keeping society going and gotten sick. The, the idea that you can somehow control community spread through these mitigation strategies is just not true, Michael. Um, and we your, have to understand your argument, that- Yeah. I want to get in here and make this interactive because I, I, I love contemplation of what you're saying, even in those aspects I don't agree with. You say protect the most vulnerable, protect the elderly. Haven't we done that? I mean, the latest data that I have from the CDC is that more than 98.5% of seniors already have at least one shot. I mean, haven't we been in a case following that prescription? Uh, I mean, to some extent, we have. I mean, we prioritized the elderly in the in vaccination. At least some states did. Uh, that was that was actually quite good. Um, and of course, we still quite a quite a number of elderly still don't have the second shot. And I think the elderly should get the booster. Um, that's actually certainly a very important part of it. We could do more also. So when people do get sick, even if they're vaccinated, we should make the monoclonal antibodies and some of, some of the other uh, treatment options much more widely available than they have been. Um, especially the monoclonal antibodies seem to work really well. Uh, and, and I think uh, there are other things we can do, like we can make these lateral flow test kits much cheaper and much more widely available. That's something you, you covered actually, Michael, in your, in your um, setup, and I completely agree with. That's something that would give power to people to say, okay, is it safe to go visit grandma, right? Or is it safe to, to, to do you, this activity? Um, when you first proposed this, and I remember interviewing you here on, on CNN when you first released the Barrington Declaration, in that era, 
There was a Harvard infectious disease specialist who said, I think it's wrong. I think it's unsafe. I think it invites people to act in ways that have the potential to do an enormous amount of harm. You know, that's Rochelle Walensky, who today is the head of the CDC. You'd say what to her? I mean, she, she premised her idea on this, on the idea that there is no such thing as natural immunity. She signed something called the John Snow Memorandum that was premised on the idea that if you get sick and recover from COVID, you are not protected against reinfection. Now, we now know that to be false. It was false when she signed it. Um, the, 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 the idea that you can't protect the vulnerable, that the only way to protect the vulnerable is by reducing, uh, is by these lockdowns, was also another premise of this, of the document she signed. And that has turned out, as said, to be false. I think the main problem, Michael, is that uh, people like Dr. Walensky do not seem to understand that these lockdowns have imposed enormous harm on on working class people, on the poor, throughout the world. Uh, the, 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 uh, there's there's data from places like, uh, the, the, from the UN suggesting that 100 million people have been thrown into poverty as a consequence of rich countries imposing lockdowns. Uh, 80 million people thrown into dire food insecurity, hundreds of thousands of children dead in South Asia as a consequence of starvation caused by the economic harm by, posed by these lockdowns. They view these lockdowns as if they were a, just a common sense thing with low cost. I, mean, I, Dr. I, I get, I get the social cost. I, I understand it. I, I, you know, we, we have three who are still in school under our roof. I get the real life impact of, of what it means um, and some of those societal costs that have yet to be really calculated. The news tonight, as I shared at the outset of the program, is that the latest data from the UK suggests it might not be as mild as we were hoping, right? Highly infectious, Omicron. We had hoped that it was mild. Now it turns out that might not be the case. Does that alter any of your thinking? I mean, it's funny. I just was looking at data from South Africa, which indicates the opposite. It was actually a pretty careful look at age-specific mortality. It seems milder. Uh, but, you know, whether it's milder or not, the key question is, it does it evade natural immunity? The answer seems to be no. If you were previously infected, you can be infected with Omicron, but you're going to get milder disease, just like that was true with Delta and Alpha. Um, similarly, the vaccine seems to still produce milder disease even if you're infected. That's the key thing. Uh, we've turned COVID into this thing where if we get it, somehow we've failed. No, if we get COVID and and, and survive well with it, if it's turned, if it's a mild, if you if you and if you're vaccinated. Well, I mean that that's exactly what the vaccine does. That's why it's that's why we're recommending it. Um, then I get I get it's, the it's argument, but so because of the economies of scale, even even if very few die from it, that's still a hell of a lot of people. Dr. Bhattacharya, quick social media reaction. Let's respond to it together. I haven't seen it. Let's take a look. Smirkanish, is this guy's point? that we should just let everyone get sick with COVID, overrun our hospitals? Where do breast cancer people get treated if hospitals are overrun? You would say what to Paradise Graham, who sent that in? I'd say that the hospitals are over, have basically been shut down as a consequence of decisions like lockdowns, like the, like we, 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 we closed down hospitals and, and elective procedures, not because COVID overran them, but rather because we made a, a conscious decision to lock down, um, that, which didn't actually stop community spread. Community spread happens regardless of our illusion of control over it. Uh, and I think we have to stop thinking we have control over the, the spread of this virus when we actually do not. That itself has caused harm. Doc Dr. Bhattacharya, to be continued, thank you for coming back. Thank you, Michael, for having me.
Former Minnesota police officer Kim Potter breaking down on the stand today as she testified in her own defense for the shooting death of Dante Wright. You knew that deadly force was unreasonable and unwarranted in those circumstances. And I didn't want to hurt anybody. So was it the right move for her to testify? Paul Callen is a former homicide prosecutor, now defense lawyer. His take is next. Former Minneapolis police officer Kim Potter apologized for, quote, what happened while on trial for killing 20-year-old black motorist Dante, Dante Wright. She got emotional on the stand while answering questions about why she fired her gun instead of her taser during the traffic stop. She also confirmed that she did not render aid. Listen. You'd agree that as a police officer, you have the duty to render aid and communicate information to other officers, right? Yes. And it's part of your job to assist those who are hurt or injured, true? Yes. And to communicate to other officers what you know about a particular scene, right? Yes. Give them whatever information you can to help them do their jobs, to help render assistance, things like that, right? Yes. But you didn't do any of those things on April 11th, did you? No. You stopped doing your job completely. You didn't communicate what happened over the radio, right? No. You didn't make sure any officers knew what you had just done, right? No. You were focused on what you had done, because you had just killed somebody. I'm sorry it happened. Closing arguments scheduled to begin on Monday. Let's bring in somebody who knows this world very well, CNN legal analyst and former New York City prosecutor, now turned defense attorney, Paul Callen. Paul, the facts are not in dispute in this case. So what's the issue? Well, the real issue is uh, how the jury is going to respond to this fact pattern. Prosecutors are saying that uh, the police officer involved, uh, Officer Potter, acted recklessly and negligently in mistaking her taser for her police pistol, her Glock, and that that alone is a crime under Minnesota law, and that this was uh, an unreasonable use of force, and um, she's facing manslaughter charges, manslaughter in the first degree and manslaughter in the second degree. From the evidence of the case, I want to show a photograph. It's a side-by-side comparison of the taser versus the firearm. What's the significance of this? Well, I think it's a demonstration that it's really tough to mix these two weapons up. Um, the, the taser uh, is colored in a different way. It's a slightly different size. And the jury actually heard testimony that uh, traditionally uh, the police officers involved wear the taser on their less dominant side and the real gun on their dominant side. And that's exactly uh, what Officer Potter did. She had her Glock revolver on the right and the taser on the left. Nonetheless, she pulled the Glock and she says she, uh, she thought it was the taser. Third time, third recent case, very high profile. There was Rittenhouse, there was McMichael. Now there's this case where a defendant has made the decision to take the stand in their own defense. How'd she do? Well, I thought she did remarkably well, to tell you the truth. And I, and I say that because having watched a lot of these police shooting cases through the years, and sadly, we've had a lot of them in the United States, normally when the officer takes the stand, if he does take the stand, it's sort of a stoic presentation. 
in which the officer absolutely defends his actions. He says, hey, the defendant was reaching into his pocket. I thought it was a gun. I thought I was in danger and I acted properly. I used force reasonably. On the other hand, Officer Potter here broke down in tears uh, and said, I'm so sorry that I made this mistake. It was horrible. She didn't even try uh, to justify the use of force or the, the level of force that was used here as uh, other officers have done. So it really was a remarkable turnabout in the kind of testimony you would expect in a case like this. And she may have garnished quite a bit of sympathy from this jury uh, as she told the tale of how she made this mistake that horribly led to the death of Dante Wright. Tragic, tragic case. Such a sad outcome. We'll find out next week exactly how it wraps up. Paul, thank you so much. Thank you, Michael. President Biden ending this year with the lowest first year approval ratings of any elected president in modern history, with the exception of Donald Trump. So in the case of Biden, what's driving it? Our own Fareed Zakaria calls it a puzzle, but he has a theory and he's next. President Biden has a popularity pro problem. His approval is underwater. His standing with young voters is at 35%. That's down from the 70s in Gallup's January numbers. Even the slightly better numbers in the latest CNN poll are nowhere near the 60% support Biden needed from young voters to win the White House. My next guest argues the cause is all the new anxieties that we're living through. And he writes this, quote, presidents often get rewarded for being around in good times, whether they cause them or not. In Joe Biden's case, he has mostly handled his job with intelligence and decency, but he is paying the price for the complicated times that we are living through. Joining me now, CNN's Fareed Zakaria, who is the author of that piece. Fareed, thank you so much for being here. Go ahead and make the case because I want a rebuttal. <laughs> well, uh, in, that, in that same piece, I begin by saying Biden is an accidental president. So part of what's going on here is that Normally, presidents come to the office with enormous personal political capital. After all, they've won the presidency. But Biden is accidental in the sense that he, he basically became president for two reasons. One, Obama chose him as his vice president. Um, and second, Donald Trump. He was the not Donald Trump alternative on the ballot. And so as a result, when you think back of presidents, Kennedy, Obama, Clinton, uh, even even somebody like George uh, Bush, they had a certain kind of charisma and personal political capital that they could use. Biden, I think, lacks some of that. But the overwhelming problem is he's passed a lot of stuff that people like. He's handled his office, in my opinion, with, with decency and grace. He's, he's a good man. But we're living through very complicated times. People expected the pandemic to be over. But it's not over. It's grinding on in this strange way where just when you thought it was safe to get back in the water, you're not, it's not safe. Uh, America's position in the world is complicated. We get, we get out of Afghanistan that everyone thought was good, but it's a messy, awful, humiliating uh, experience. Uh, it, it, the economy is doing well you know, on some measures, but you have inflation. So all of it leads to a very unsatisfying feeling. And for the president who promised we're going to get back to normal, you know, where we're past the, the weird abnormality of Donald Trump, the weird abnormality of COVID, I'm going to restore normalcy. Well, 
it's not normal. Not yet, at least. So, so I would say your first part, slightly different. He benefited from the daily split screen where there was this comparison with Donald Trump. And, and now that's just no longer the case, especially when Trump is missing his access to social media. My second factor would be that given the partisan times in which we live, unless America is at war, the days of a president having a 60% approval rating are over. The third point that I would make is, I don't know that you're giving due credit to things that aren't going well on his watch, whether it's the continuation of COVID, inflation, the border, the withdrawal of Afghanistan, which seemed haphazard. I mean, there are a number of things that for better or worse, they've happened on his watch and he needs to be held accountable for them. Right. But but what I would say is on Afghanistan, look, the truth of the matter is Americans don't vote on foreign policy. They subcontracted that to the president. They wanted to get out of Afghanistan. Yes, it was messy. As I said at the time, they, he handled it badly, but truthfully, there is no elegant way to get out of a war that you've been losing for 10 years. And, you know, maybe they could have done a few of the, the sequencing better. But at the end of the day, the fundamental problem, the people who really should be held to account are the people who kept telling us we were winning this war for 15 years when exactly the opposite was true. So I, I think when you look at, uh, you know, things like COVID, you and you and I both know, Michael, if more of the country adopted the strategy that he and you know all the public health officials say we should adopt, which is get vaccinated, we would be in a very different space. Yes, we would have problems, but we'd be in a very different space. I don't mean to minimize the the you know the mistakes he's made, but my point is he's at 45 percent. That's very low. That's kind of in the that's in the range of somebody who has really had a cataclysmic series of failures and mistakes. And that's not really where Biden is. He's at a point where people, somebody who's been truly venal and nasty, you know, and kind of uh, immoral in his, in his, in his. Uh, that's not Biden. There's something else going on here, which is what I was trying to explain. Well, you prompted a great conversation. I took note of the fact that there were, I think, nearly five thousand comments appended to your piece at the time that I first read it. Fareed, thank you so much for being here. Always a pleasure, Michael. More with Fareed, Fareed Zakaria, GPS, 10 a.m. Eastern on Sunday. Biden's prospects hinge on tonight's survey question, by the way. Haven't even mentioned it till now, but I'd love if you'd go to my website at Smirconish.com quickly and answer this. It's the old, are you better off financially? Better or worse off than you were one year ago? Go to Smirconish.com right now. I'll give you the results in just a couple of minutes at the end of the hour. And it's eight days until Christmas, which also means, love it or hate it, the annual War on Christmas conversation is back. That'll be the subject of tonight's reality check with John Avalon next. Waging a war on Christmas. War on Christmas. There's a war on Christmas. It's the war on Christmas. War on Christmas. War on Christmas. War on Christmas. It's a constant refrain, seems to only ramp up every year, but the so-called war on Christmas is actually nothing new. In fact, its origins date back centuries. John Avalon has tonight's reality check. Thanks, Michael. Look, I love Christmas. The kids, the trees, the carols, the It's a Wonderful Life marathons, all of it. But the season's generosity of spirit always seems to run into the buzzsaw of strange people trying to score political points by warning about a war on Christmas. 
Now, if you didn't know better, you might think they're talking about Congressman Thomas Massey's gun-toting family Christmas card. But, of course, they're simply repeating the riffs they've heard on Fox News, which has been serving as War on Christmas headquarters for almost two decades now. And the most enthusiastic field marshal in this phony war is ex-president Donald Trump, who tried to take credit for defeating the ghosts of Christmas wars past in a fawning new interview with Mike Huckabee. When you came into office, America had gone through a long period where people quit saying Merry Christmas. It was all happy holidays. You deliberately changed that. This was in 2015. When I started campaigning, I said, you're going to say Merry Christmas again. And now people are saying it. Now, it's tempting to say this is just the old arsonist as firefighter routine with some mistletoe over it. But it is worth asking how this candy cane flavored insanity all began. Well, Ex-Fox anchor Bill O'Reilly commonly gets credit for immaculately conceiving the war on Christmas during a seasonal rant against secular progressives in 2004. But the real story of the war on Christmas actually predates Fox News by decades, if not centuries. And as I found out while researching our latest Reality Check digital series, its roots are even weirder and more revealing than you might imagine. So let's work our way back to 1959, when a notorious wingnut organization known as the John Birch Society was busy alerting Americans of an assault on Christmas at the hands of the United Nations, warning that there were secret orders at department stores throughout the country to utilize UN symbols and emblems as Christmas decorations. Now, if that sounds a bit mid-century tinfoil hat to you, check out more contemporary echoes from the 1920s, when a Henry Ford-backed publication opined that last Christmas, Most people had a hard time finding Christmas cards that indicated in any way that Christmas commemorated someone's birth. And who was to blame for allegedly taking the Christ out of Christmas? Here's a hint. The name of the series of articles was The International Jew, the World's Foremost Problem. Yeah, it's really ugly anti-Semitic stuff. But that's kind of the point, right? I mean, accusations of a war on Christmas are rooted in what we would now call in political terms negative partisanship. The idea that your perceived opponents are not just mistaken, but evil. So evil that they want to cancel Christmas. But the ultimate irony is that if you go far back enough, the real war on Christmas was started by Puritan Christians. It's true. During the English Civil War, these austere English killjoys decided to literally ban Christmas celebrations by an order of Parliament in 1647. It was considered too indulgent, not focused enough on the Bible. So they made it a time of, get this, fasting and humiliation. Seriously, it's a reminder that fundamentalists are just no fun. Even after the English overturned that unpopular mandate, some Puritans exported their ban to the American colonies. In fact, in 17th century Boston, you could get fined five shillings if you got caught celebrating Christmas. And that was low to dough back then. This risk was removed post-revolution with the passage of the First Amendment, protecting the freedom of religion. And any latent impulse to conduct a war on Christmas should have been finally laid to rest in 1870, when President Ulysses S. Grant made it a federal holiday. Christmas has been safely celebrated ever since, even with occasional skirmishes like lawsuits to remove nativity scenes from public property, which most Americans generally have no problem with keeping, even though it can be seen as violating that old constitutional prohibition on any official state religion. Nonetheless, according to Pew Research, As many as nine out of every 10 Americans say they celebrate Christmas, including 81% of non-Christians. So you and your kids can sleep easy while waiting for Santa, knowing that the spirit of the season has somehow survived and thrived despite all these trumped-up warnings about this phony war on Christmas. And that's 
your reality check. Back to you. John Avlon, thank you. We'll be right back with your social media reaction to tonight's program. Time for results from tonight's survey question at Smirconish.com. Are you financially better or worse off than you were a year ago? 9,000 voted, 47% better off, 15% worse off, 38% about the same. All right, well, that's headed in the right direction. More social media reaction to tonight's program. What do we have? She is certainly guilty of negligence and some jail time scenes warranted, but the juxtaposition of her prison while Rittenhouse makes his promotional tour for the right-wing media is quite... Look, the, the, the whole shooting incident to which you're referring was just so damn tragic. Uh, she made a mistake. Of course, she's contrite about it. The question is, was she reckless? That's the issue for the jury. I was watching this all unfold today, and one of my sons came into my office and said, she's apologetic. It was a god-awful tragedy. He's dead. But what's the issue? The issue is, was she reckless? One more real quick. I think I've got time to sneak this in. At what point can the responsible stop paying the price for the irresponsible and purposely unvaxxed? Xander, I said, I'm losing, I'm losing my sense of compassion for those who are refusing to get vaxxed and, and then get themselves and the rest of society into trouble. So I feel the same way. I feel the same way. And no amount of browbeating is going to change their minds. Thank you so much for watching all week long. I'll be back on Monday night. Please join me tomorrow morning and every Saturday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern for Smirconish right here on CNN. I'm laughing. I don't know how that'll look, but okay. Don Lemon starts right now. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country. Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.